Is postmodernism neo-Marxist? Well, my answer to that question is going to be yes, no, and sort of. In our generation, with the rise of postmodernism not only as an intellectual movement, but a cultural movement, and the now in the last five years or so big pushback against postmodernism, Jordan Peterson is probably the most famous person arguing that the neo-Marxist label applies. Postmodern neo-Marxism is a, a, a stock phrase in his, his uh, analysis. Jordan Peterson recommends my Explaining Postmodernism book, uh, for which I am quite happy. But he is uh, an independent thinker, and his analysis and mine do differ in some important ways. So let's do some uh, genealogy, uh, as the Nietzsche-inspired postmodernists would say, or some archaeology, as the more Foucault-inspired postmodernists would say, to try to get to this question of origins. The genealogy war, uh, metaphor works. So if we say, you know, uh, Karl Marx is the grandfather of postmodernism, then uh, probably the best way to put it is to say that postmodernism is the, the grandchild who became the black sheep of the family. There are at least two intellectual generations from Marx to the first generation postmodernist, so the grandparent metaphor works. But if you bring in grandfathers, then you can also ask, well, who's the grandmother? And uh, when there's a grandmother and a grandfather, there's always another grandmother and a grandfather. So perhaps the genealogy story is more complex. All right, let's start, though, with uh, the case for saying, yes, postmodernism does have Marxist roots and perhaps is a form of neo-Marxism. So here we have to go to the 1950s. This is when the major postmodernists of the first generation are cutting their intellectual teeth. Michel Foucault, Jean-Francois Lyotard, Richard Rorty, Jacques Derrida, all of them are getting their PhD degrees finished in the 1950s, all of them in philosophy. But uh, we should also have a look at their political allegiances at this time. And the uh, positive points here to make are pretty obvious ones. Michel Foucault did, in fact, join the Communist Party, and the Communist Party is a, a Marxist organization. So he is a, a deep drinker at the well of Marxism in the early 1950s. Jean-Francois Lyotard is an editor and researcher associated with the very radical left group Socialism or Barbarism, a Marx intensive organization. Richard Rorty is a social democrat, so he's much more of a borderline case. He's not a Marxist, but he's pretty far out there in left field. He, though, uh, is not as extreme either in his postmodern politics or his underlying postmodern philosophical commitments. Jacques Derrida, another interesting case. He hung out in Marxist circles, published in their magazines and contributed and so forth, but he did not join the Communist Party. He did, however, later write that his main project, Deconstructionism, that's the label he's most famous for, that that entire project had significance for him only in the context of Marxism, and that even while he abandoned Marxism, his entire project retained, quote, the spirit of Marxism, unquote. Of course, there's a, an irony there, probably intentional, given Marx's materialism. Uh, so here we have a post-Marxist, talking about spiritualism and the spirit of Marxism. But it was uh, in the early 1950s that many Marxists and close fellow travelers like him and Foucault began to drift away. 
Derrida in his uh, memoir-type writings did say, reflecting on the 1950s, and he does say, for many of us, this is a direct quote, a certain, and I emphasize certain, end of communist Marxism did not await the recent collapse of the USSR and everything that depends on all of that started. All of that was indubitably at the beginning of the 1950s. So what we then have is young PhDs, very intelligent uh, young men, all of them uh, hanging out in the area of Marxism, some of them joining the Communist Party, but they are drifting away, but nonetheless retaining the spirit of Marxism. So how are we to understand this? How far was the drift? What was retained? So uh, I'm assuming that the listener will have some understanding of what Marxism is all about. Uh, so the, we'll just march through what I take to be kind of 10 important points in quick summary form. I'm going to organize them under the self-descriptive label that Marx himself used, that his version of socialism was, quote, scientific socialism. What's built into the science? Well, first and foremost, there's a metaphysical claim that the world is the material world and only the material world. So there's a very vigorous materialism, a reductive materialism. Everything is reduced to underlying material components in Marxism. Of all the material forces in the world, there's an additional claim that economics is the most fundamental science and that all human activity and so forth reduces to and stems from economic forces operating in a material reality. There's an additional kind of scientific claim that everything that happens happens of logical necessity that there are laws of development that social science can figure out and that the cause and effect is very tight, that there are necessary stages through which uh, all human activities and social organizations will follow, and that as a result, scientifically, we can predict how these things are going to work out. The stage that we are currently in, capitalist industrialization, is a necessary right, part of the process, and this sounds somewhat heretical uh, to some Marxist ears, but we are to celebrate capitalism and industrialization because it is a necessary step taking us closer and closer to the revolution. Now, the revolution to talk brings us to the socialism part of scientific socialism. Built into Marxist socialism is a very adversarial understanding of the world, that there is a certain amount of wealth uh, and material forces, material property in the world. Some people have it, some people don't. And competition, an adversarial zero-sum competition for those economic resources is, uh, is deep. As a result of that, since some people have more power than others, some have more wealth than others, oppression and exploitation are fundamentally characteristic of our current stage of social development. Human beings, because of the differential power uh, possessions that are out there in the world, are shaped by the classes that they are born into. Marx also agrees with a very strong form of environmental determinism. Human beings are not born with souls or spirits or an independent reason that can think for itself. Rather, everything that we think, believe, and value is also a product of underlying economic circumstances. We are conditioned by our economic circumstances, and so people who are born into di very different economic circumstances think and value very differently and therefore are in adversarial relations to each other. As a result of this, the uh, bringing about of socialism is not going to be through discussion and uh, compromise. 
compromise and, and, and working out a mutually beneficial deal. Rather, it's going to require a violent revolution. The proletariat need to rise up, overthrow and kill off their class enemies and establish for a while the dictatorship of the proletariat. Eventually, though, Marx hopes and predicts that uh, all of the class divisions will be wiped away and the ultimate state that human beings should end up with will be in a classless society, that all human beings will be the same. There will be a kind of universal humanity that we reach. At that point, the fundamental socialist ethical imperative will be realized captured in uh, Marx's phrase, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. All right, that's 10 points in quick summary form. Let's revisit each of those points and then ask, well, where do the postmodern thinkers stand in relation to each of those Marxist themes. The result is going to be a split decision on some of them. Absolutely, they reject classical Marxism and drift away or move in a very different direction. But some of them are very much retained and perhaps at best tweaked. In his book, Entrepreneurial Living, 15 stories of innovation, risk and achievement, and one story of abject failure, Professor Stephen Hicks has put together a series of interviews with entrepreneurs from six different countries and seven U.S. states to explore the adventure and the hard-headedness of business. In this book, Hicks explores what makes for entrepreneurial success and failure. To what extent does success depend on the key decisions, ideas, persistent action or character traits? How does one's business life fit into one's overall life? And how does one even define success? Our belief is that we can always learn from the accomplishments and setbacks of others. The life stories from others can be informative, cautionary and inspirational as we each strive to more fully realize our own potentials and achieve our own goals. The 16 entrepreneurs featured in this book are widespread geographically as well as in the range of their endeavors, from sports to education, to fashion, to technology, to finance, to advertising, to architecture, to cosmetics, and more. Observation of success and failure is often the best way to avoid pitfalls, learning from the mistakes of others to get on the pathway to success. This book doesn't disappoint, providing engaging and useful insights from the accounts of 16 entrepreneurs whose reflections are both personal to them and timeless in their significance for the rest of us. Pick up your copy of Entrepreneurial Living, 15 Stories of Innovation, Risk and Achievement, and One Story of Abject Failure by Stephen Hicks on Amazon.com. And while you're online, please leave a review for the Open College Podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Now back to the podcast. Let's start with the materialism. Uh, as postmodernists, can we make a metaphysical claim that the world fundamentally is material and operating according to cause and effect material? laws and so forth. And here the postmoderns are very much anti-Marxist. Metaphysically, their position is an anti-metaphysical position. They are skeptical enough about the possibility of doing metaphysics to say that we can't say anything about the way outside reality really is, whether it's a material world or it's a spiritual world or some sort of other pantheistic, naturalistic, whatever. All of the metaphysics that has been done up to now is rather pointless and we are are anti-realistic. That is to say, we don't think that we should be making claims about the nature of reality. We have to abandon that metaphysical 
philosophical project. So that's a big break with Marxism. Do we embrace Marxist logic, even if we call it dialectical logic and so forth, and say that there are necessary cause and effect processes operative in the world? And here again, the postmoderns represent a big break. We don't know what the external world is. We can't say anything about its cause and effect relations, nonetheless capture them in logical laws or logical principles. Instead, at best we can say there is the social world that we all participate in and that there are ongoing power struggles. Uh, most of the postmodernists will also abandon the idea that there's a telos or any sort of an end game. Instead, uh, we're in an unpredictable world of competing power dynamics. How they will play out, no one can know. What about the claim from the Marxists that of all of the material and other forces operating out there in the real world, that it's the economic ones that are fundamental? Here, the postmoderns will reject that claim. Obviously, in social reality, economic forces and economic competition and economic dynamics, those are socially real. But we can't make the claim that that one is fundamental and explains all of the others. Instead, the postmoderns will typically argue that economic clashes are but one aspect of a multidimensional cultural clash. So there's class conflict, but there's also ethnic conflict and sex and gender conflict and race conflict and religion conflict and so forth. So economics is not special in that list of uh, forces. What about uh, science more broadly speaking? Do we think that in some sense uh, Marxists as a social scientists are telling the true story about the world that they have the right correct scientific theory about the way the world works. And again, the postmoderns will break. They substitute narrative language for theory language. And science, from their perspective, is just one more story that we tell. It's not necessarily any better or worse than any other stories that are out there. So postmoderns are of, at least in the first generation, of the same generation as Thomas Kuhn with his paradigms with and with uh, Paul Feyerabend and uh, his, his notion that science and witchcraft and so forth are not on any different epistemological standing. So what we have then is postmodern feminists uh, who will argue that science is maybe just a male way of thinking and that feminist epistemology should be completely different. Uh, postmodern uh, race theorists, for example, will argue that science as a narrative is just a white way of thinking about the world and non-white people can have their own equally legitimate narratives. Postmodern ethnic theorists will say, well, it's just a Eurocentric way of thinking science is, and there are non-scientific narratives and non-scientific methods of thinking that are equally legitimate. So the point here is that on the materialism, on the, the logic, on the making economics fundamental, and on the valorization of science and social science that we find in Marxism, the postmoderns do reject all four of those. So I think the Marxists, especially the classical Marxists, are exactly right to say from their perspective that postmodernism is anti-Marxism. It's not Marxism, and it's not a, a neo-Marxism, it's a fundamental rejection of four very important metaphysical and epistemological points that are foundational to Marxism. But if we turn to the normative issues and the, uh, the remaining six elements in the normative package, broadly speaking, that characterizes 
Marxism. The seeing the world fundamentally in adversarial terms, right? That it's zero sum, it's you versus me, it's my group versus your group against any sort of liberalism or progressivism that says that human beings can work out their differences peacefully and positively and reach win-win or positive sum results. Right, that postmodern adversarialism and zero sum, the postmoderns retain that. For their view, it is a zero sum power struggle in the social dominance reality, and that is not at all abandoned. Instead, it's just given more dimensions of, uh, of, of social adversarialism. Is the world, second point, marked by exploitation and oppression as the dominant social fact? Absolutely, yes, all of the postmoderns will say. And in this strong versus weak exploitation and oppression, what side should we take? I mean, one of the big battles between, say, the Marxists and the Nietzscheans, both of them have this exploitation, oppression, adversarial, zero-sum analysis of the world. And in shorthand form, the Nietzscheans and perhaps those on the very far right will say, well, in the strong versus weak power struggle, we should take the side of the strong and their dominance over the weak. That's how we make progress. The Marxists and, uh, and others will say in this power struggle, uh, we should take the side of those who are on the losing uh, end. Those who are being exploited, being oppressed and so forth, our sympathies should lie with them. And the postmoderns carry on that Marxist solidarity, identification with the losing side, with the victims or the perceived victims in this power struggle. And this is an important Marxist and neo-Marxist or cultural Marxist. We'll tease out some of those differences just a little bit later. But the point is that we see exploitation and oppression as fundamentally, and we side with those on the receiving end of the exploitation and oppression. This is a very marked theme in all of the leading postmodern writings. So we find Lyotard explicitly uh, uh, agreeing with Foucault, saying that if we are to be moral individuals, that what we need to do is, quote, bear witness to the dissonance Right, especially the dissonance of others. Dissonance, of course, is a, a negative state of uh, connection to reality, and that one is bearing witness, that is to say, showing empathy or sympathy or identifying with others who are experiencing this. Richard Rorty argues in his version of solidarity, solidarity is most achieved and mostly about the negative. Right, The way he puts it is, quote, the imaginative ability to see strange people as fellow sufferers. So notice the emphasis, we're all fellow sufferers, and solidarity is a matter of suffering together. And the way he puts it further is solidarity is created by increasing our sensitivity to the pain and humiliation of others, unquote. So again, the emphasis is on pain and humility, or humiliation, rather. Uh, as always, the, uh, the sources will be put in the, uh, the transcription and at the website when this is published. The host of the Open College podcast, Dr. Stephen Hicks, is a renowned philosopher and author. His field of study and insights into postmodernism explain how it has become one of the most powerful intellectual movements of our time, and what that actually means. If you'd like to access more information from Dr. Hicks himself, then check out his website at www.stephenhicks.org. You'll be able to find details on his latest publications, 
courses and philosophical information concerning business ethics, education, intellectual history and religion. To stay up to date with the latest from Stephen Hicks himself, make sure you've subscribed to the Open College Podcast feed and follow at Open College Podcast on all your favourite social networks. And while you're online, please leave the show a review on iTunes and Stitcher. Now back to the podcast. All right, so uh, what about the uh, the use of violence? One of the things that characterizes Marxism is its uh, its view that we're not going to make progress through peaceful means, through democratic means, uh, that rather it's going to take a revolution. The revolution will be in physical form. We're not going to get there by argumentation, civility. So all of those liberal and democratic republican methods, forget it. We are totally opposed to that. Instead, we need to take it to the streets, shut down the opposition through physical threats, even the use of weapons, right, and so forth. And I think it's pretty clear if we follow the journalism and it's including the rhetoric, with Rorty being, a, a, again, a, a milder version of this, but all of the major postmoderns and their followers are pretty uh, harsh in their rhetoric and willing to take activist steps rather than that involve physicalist means rather than argument and discussion. So there's a continuity with Marxism there. Once we also find postmoderns getting into positions of power, Marxists had talked about the dictatorship of the proletariat, a rather ruthless uh, dictatorial point right? for quote unquote, the good cause. Uh, we find that postmoderns, once they get into power, all of the stereotypes and uh, true stories about the political correctness being rammed down people's throats by postmodern thinkers. That is a continuity again with Marxism. But uh, on those four points, so I do think it's uh, exactly right to say that uh, postmodernism is a child of Marxism. With some tweaking, it's the exact same broad themes being brought forth into the next intellectual movement here. But in the normative areas, I think there are two important points in which the postmoderns do disagree with classical Marxism. Marx had uh, ultimately argued that uh, there's a, a, a universal humanity, uh, that the workers of the world, for example, should unite, and that beyond all of their gender or ethnic or racial and so forth differences, we're all human beings, and we have share the same ultimate interests, and we should ultimately be part of one communist society. And all of the postmoderns reject that universal humanism element in Marxism. And what we find all of the postmoderns do is argue for ethnic breakdowns, race and gender breakdowns, uh, and so forth. So Richard Rorty, for example, talks quite explicitly about our ethnocentric predicament and how Partly on uh, epistemological grounds, he says most of us are really just, even a smart philosopher is not able to think in terms of universal principles and universal rights and seeing everybody as brothers and sisters under the skin. The kind of epistemological modesty that postmodernism argues for, the skepticism about the broader narratives, well, universal humanity is a pretty broad narrative. So instead, the way Rorty puts it is both cognitively and normatively, quote, our sense of solidarity is strongest when those with whom solidarity is expressed are thought of as one of us, where us means something and smaller and more local than the human race. So if you have a very smart philosopher saying this, 
imagine then for those of us who are not so smart, the average person and all the people who are below average intelligence, what Rorty is in effect saying is that the human reality is that people think in terms of their ethnic groups, their racial groups, their gender groups, and so forth. And this is a sideways point here for all of the differences between the postmodern left and the alt-right. That's exactly what the alt-right is saying. Next point. Marx was famous for saying from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And one of his big beating up points on capitalism was supposed to be that capitalism didn't provide for people's needs, the vast majority of people's needs, and that was his major moral indictment of it. All of the postmoderns abandoned the need claim. Uh, They are part of a major transition in left thinking that started in the 50s and the 1960s when it came to be pretty clear that capitalism, the free market, broadly liberal democratic societies, were pretty darn good at providing people's uh, for people's needs. Instead, what the left, including the postmodern left, started to do was abandon satisfying need as the standard and arguing for equality as the standard. So the new criticism was that uh, capitalism, freedom, liberalism, whatever you want to call it, as the foil position against the post, which the postmoderns are arguing, was that the goodies do not get shared out equally. And it's not just economic goodies, it's all of the goodies across the various social dimensions. So instead of satisfying need, and need does leave open the possibility that people have different needs, and some people, once everybody's needs are satisfied, can have more, the postmoderns are egalitarian quite consistently. So on those six more normative points, the postmoderns accept, by my count, four out of the six. So if we were to do some kind of silly but uh, crude philosophy math here, I've listed 10 Marxist points. The postmoderns have rejected six of those 10 points, but they have retained four of them. So I think it is the strength of those four. Those four are significant points that one can say, okay, postmodernism is a kind of neo-Marxism. But I think we also do have to recognize that postmodern is also a significant break from classical Marxism on a majority of the points that are also quite philosophically significant. But rather than the silly 10-point math, I think the better way to look at this is to say, if you take philosophical framing, philosophy is divided into really four areas, metaphysics, epistemology, the study of human nature, and then all of the normative issues of ethics and politics. What's going on is that the postmoderns are entirely abandoning the metaphysics and the epistemology of Marxism but they are keeping essentially keeping the flame going on pretty much all of the issues or a majority of the issues in human nature and retaining the broad normative framework of Marxism. Friedrich Nietzsche was famous for his statement that God is dead and his provocative account of master and slave moralities, and also for the fact that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis claimed that Nietzsche was one of their great inspirations. Were the Nazis right to do so, or did they misappropriate Nietzsche's philosophy? Professor Stephen Hicks's concisely written book, Nietzsche and the Nazis, based on the 2006 documentary, corrects many widespread misconceptions about Nietzsche, giving a fascinating and easy-to-understand analysis of Nietzsche's work, asking and answering a number of questions, such as what were the key elements of Hitler and the National Socialist political philosophy? 
How did the Nazis come to power in a nation as educated and civilized as Germany? What was Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy? The philosophy of live dangerously and that which does not kill us makes us stronger? And to what extent did Nietzsche's philosophy provide a foundation for the horrors perpetrated by the Nazis? Professor Hicks demonstrates his mastery of this subject using quotes and critical analysis that prove his points and show the true linkage between Nietzsche and the Nazis and how philosophical ideas move the world. Get your copy of Nietzsche and the Nazis by Stephen Hicks on Amazon.com today. And while you're online, please leave a review for the Open College podcast hosted by Hicks himself on iTunes or Stitcher. Now back to the podcast. So earlier we suggested Karl Marx could be seen as a grandfather of postmodernism. So who might some of the other important grandparents be? Now for this, uh, I want to set aside a lot of the epistemological issues. I think there are some important names that need to be talked about here. Immanuel Kant, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and so forth. But if we focus just on the, the normative side of things, especially the socialism side of things, it seems to be a, a core focus. Then uh, let me say a few more things about the uh, the Marxist neo Marxist connection. One important story is to talk about classical Marxism and how it evolved or devolved, if you're opposed to it. And uh, I think there are some important stages that, uh, that do need to be delineated here. Uh, one is to say what is classical Marxism, and then one goes through and one reads the primary sources there and the very close followers of Marx and Engels, who by and large accepted everything they said to be true, and were working out the details. And next stage, though, is neo-Marxism. And I think neo-Marxism starts after Marx dies, and you start to have a number of thinkers who are starting off as Marxists, but who come to believe that there are important elements of the Marxist package that need to be modified significantly or replaced. And again, there's a judgment call here, but if you start tinkering and changing some of the important elements, then you're not a Marxist anymore in the classical sense. You are a neo-Marxist. So there are any number of uh, thinkers who are at the theoretical level doing this. Lenin, for example, with his Marxism-Leninism, that's a kind of neo-Marxism because it involves a break on some points as well. Now, a next generation, though, is uh, broadly cultural Marxism, and I think this is a more substantial departure from Marxism. So at this point, we might be getting to the grandchild generation here. And this is, I think, thinkers after World War II who are starting to argue more substantially that while there's a core of truth or a core of theoretical importance to Marxism, uh, its emphasis on perhaps the necessitarian elements, the iron logic of development, the emphasis on the, uh, the, the economic points of being fundamental and so forth, and instead of substitution of a broader understanding of cultural dynamics, a more sophisticated social psychology incorporating perhaps some Freud as Frankfurt thinker schools are or Frankfurt school thinkers are doing, right, then we're not neo-Marxist just changing a few elements here and there. We are still broadly Marxist, but it's a much more expansive, rich sociological, psychological theory that's being built upon Marxism. And then I think it's fair to say that the postmoderns are of the next generation because, you know, cultural Marxism came into being between the two major wars. Postmodernism, the first generation thinkers, are after World War II. 
And on my reading of the history of the left, they are part of the splintering of, uh, of the left into many, many subgroups. Now, it's not to say that these evolving subgroups replaced classical Marxism or neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism. Rather, you have a tree with many major branches that are going out. And postmodernism, I think, represents one of those branches. But it is a hybrid. I don't know how far we want to push these botanical metaphors and grandfather-grandparent metaphors. By the time we get to the postmoderns, they are less classical Marxist. It's a, they're majorly breaking with Marxism. They're less neo-Marxism, but significant elements of neo-Marxism there. There is significantly some cultural Marxism, but I think the better label is a mouthful. It's to say that the postmoderns are more neo-Rousseauian than they are neo Marxist. Now, for those uh, of you who remember your Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the anti-enlightenment bad boy of the 1700s, uh, all of the major features of the enlightenment, Rousseau just hated them. You find in his essays and his more systematic treatises, uh, very strong anti-science, anti-technology, anti-industrialization themes, anti-individualism, anti universal humanity views in favor of a smaller scale tribalism being valorized. He was opposed to the strong emphasis on reason and substituted a kind of emotionalism, uh, reason he thought was the great original sin of humankind. And he's much more in favor of a pro-collective general will dictatorship with uh, censorship of the press, censorship of the theater, uh, and uh, an an integration of religious views with the state uh, and so forth. And in Rousseau, really, we find a valorization of a low-tech, back-to-nature kind of tribalism. And what we find, I think, in the 1960s is as the left is breaking with classical Marxism, the old left was dominantly Marxist for basically uh, the early half of the, the first half rather of the 20th century. But the old left was seen to be finished by the time we get into the 50s. And so it's not accidental that the 1960s left is calling itself the new left. And it's splintering into a lot of different subgroups. But what we find as much more dominant themes among the new left is an emphasis not on reason, but on much more emotionalism, not the impersonal march of history, but the need for us to exert will and make personal commitments, not on the high tech and celebrating industrialization, but rather low tech and back to nature, not industry and wealth as a great important thing for all human beings, but left environmentalism becomes a very prominent movement. Now, in my uh, Explaining Postmodernism book, I do have chapter five, I call it The Crisis of Socialism, and that is largely a story of uh, how postmodernism comes out of the repeated failures of socialism over the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries. But the point that I make at three different points is to say that as Marx is receding in the minds of the leading left thinkers, Rousseau is supplanting his place uh, in the thinking of the new left. And for those of you who have the book, pages 153, 157, and 163 are three places where I, uh, I make the less Marx 
more Rousseau point about how the left is, uh, is evolving. Now, this is still, to speak at a fairly high level of abstraction about postmodernism, and of course it's important to say that we can talk about postmodernism in its generic forms, finding themes that more or less all of the major thinkers are sounding, but it's not necessarily to say that they all agree with all of those themes to the same degree and in the same formulations and so forth. Postmodernism really is a sprawling intellectual and cultural movement. It's not a monolith. And in my final chapter of the postmodernism book, I would just uh, emphasize that I go into some detail about what I see as the four major subspecies of postmodernism. So the taxonomy overall is quite complicated. Uh, It's one thing to say that we have classical Marxism, but uh, it has its own history and Uh, more precisely talking about what neo-Marxism, cultural Marxism, and postmodernism stand for, postmodern's place in the broader movement that we call the new left, and then within postmodernism itself, not seeing it only as one generic movement, but rather that there are any number of subspecies as well. The Foucauldians and the Derridans do not always get along, and in often cases are quite hostile on some important issues with respect to each other as well. So one of the big questions that we started with, you know, how uh, neo-Marxist is postmodernism? Well, I'll draw an analogy and make an advertisement for my other book, uh, Nietzsche and the Nazis. There's a split decision. Uh, when I talk about to the relationship between Friedrich Nietzsche and the National Socialists, again, there's a huge controversy over the relationship between the two. Uh, My view is that the Nietzscheans are very right to point out that Nietzsche would have been disgusted with the Nazis on any number of very important points. But it's also true to say that in some very major ways, the Nazis were intelligent and good readers of Nietzsche, and they are part of the Nietzschean family tree. I think the same thing holds for Marx and the postmodernists. In some ways, the Marxists are exactly right to say that the postmoderns are a repudiation of some central theses within Marxism, but at the same time, postmodernism is very much part of the Marxist family tree. The host of the Open College podcast, Dr. Stephen Hicks, is a renowned philosopher and author. His field of study and insights into postmodernism explain how it has become one of the most powerful intellectual movements of our time, and what that actually means. If you'd like to access more information from Dr. Hicks himself, then check out his website at www.stephenhicks.org. You'll be able to find details on his latest publications, courses, and philosophical information concerning business ethics, education, intellectual history, and religion. To stay up to date with the latest from Stephen Hicks himself, make sure you've subscribed to the Open College Podcast feed and follow at Open College Podcast on all your favorite social networks. And while you're online, please leave the show a review on iTunes and Stitcher. <laughs>